1: Te nei, te o Kia ora and welcome to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guyan Espina. We're talking to New Zealand and international experts about the way our lives will change in the wake of COVID-19, how we'll live, how we'll work, how we'll govern ourselves, the nature of our health and economic systems, and the future of our environment. And today we're focusing on society. How will a pandemic impact on our cultural life, on our human interactions, the way we live? Will it be different in a post-pandemic world? I'm joined by Clementine Ford, a Melbourne writer, speaker and feminist thinker. She's the author of two best-selling books, Fight Like a Girl in 2016 and Boys Will Be Boys, released in 2018. Her work encompasses the serious and the satirical. She tackles the stuff of society, gender issues, male violence against women and rape culture. Pika raukawa Tate also joins us. Meri affiliates to Te Arua. She is a leading advocate for women and children in Aotearoa. She's currently chair of the Farno Order Commissioning Agency based in Rotorua, where she serves on the Rotorua Lakes Council and also the local district health board. She came to prominence as Chief Executive of Women's Refuge and is a passionate advocate for the aspirations of Māori. Canadian-born Emily St. John Mandel joins us from New York. Emily has published five novels. Her 2020 mystery thriller, The Glass Hotel, is being made into a TV series, and her fourth book was the award-winning and critically acclaimed novel Station Eleven. It's a post-apocalyptic book set in the near future in a world ravaged by the effects of a virus. Emily is also a staff writer for The Millions, which is an online magazine covering books arts and culture and we'll start with you Emily what's it like to be in new york city right now
0: it's been a very strange very dark time here i've been feeling personally extremely fortunate um you know we've been in lockdown since early march and i've actually got a wonderful setup for being in lockdown we uh we have a house in brooklyn that has a a terrace up on the roof and a container garden that i've been building for years so I've been putting an enormous amount of time into the garden. So it feels like a kind of oasis where I spend a lot of time with my daughter. So personally for us, uh, life has been okay. You know, we have groceries delivered once a week. We we almost never go out. There is this awareness of death all around us. You know, that that is the reality of New York City these days. It's gotten better. We live about a mile from a hospital in Brooklyn and there was a period, I would say, actually almost all of April, when the ambulance sirens were constant. It was just day and night. And, you know, anytime you stopped to listen, you'd hear a siren. If you uh, if you stayed up late enough or got up early enough, you'd see them pass by without sirens, just lights flashing down the street. So that was a uh, that that was difficult uh, having that constant backdrop. Um, but it's gotten better since then. There are fewer sirens. You know, there's such uncertainty as there is for everybody just in terms of when schools will reopen and all the rest of that, but I've been feeling very fortunate that, uh, you know, none of my loved ones have died of the virus and and we've been okay.
1: And just before we came on to this Zoom call, um, we could hear the applause. Is that for the the health workers?
0: It is, yes. Uh, It's 7 o'clock p.m. on Sunday in New York City and... Yeah. Um, every evening at seven o'clock, everybody goes outside, they lean out their windows or go out on balconies and applaud madly and shout and, you know, bang things together. It's It began just to thank the healthcare workers. That's the timing of shift changes at hospitals. I think it's evolved into something a little bit more complicated where thanking the healthcare workers and then also a kind of expression of something, you know, sort of a release at seven o'clock every day. So, you go outside and shout and clap your hands together.
1: Clementine, where you are, do you feel that your life, your society has changed? Or do you feel we've been on both sides of the, uh, the Tasman a little bit um, more insulated and perhaps a, a little bit more fortunate?
2: It's interesting because uh, I think in the beginning, in the first few weeks, I felt similarly every time I heard an ambulance siren, um, I felt, I had that sort of wave of panic or the sense of something fundamental was changing in our society and it wasn't a case of returning to normalcy but coming out the other side and and finding whatever world awaited us there. Um, And I still think that there are some fundamental changes that obviously, uh, you know, Australia and New Zealand will experience but potentially very different to those happening in America because it feels... It actually feels quite abstract to me here now because we have had such a, and we've been able to implement such a different response to the virus for a number of different factors. I think population is, is a huge one. Also the fact that we're both islands. Um, so it's strange to be, it's been personally weird and confronting to kind of be in a situation, particularly with Australia's history of, um, you know, settlement of refugees and, antagonism towards that it's been strange and confronting to be in a situation where you're quite grateful for the ability to close borders um, so I think that what will change for us here is probably very different uh, but at the same time I do have that sense and this this prob- this also comes from a place of enormous privilege and good fortune but I do have that sense of not wanting to go back to exactly the way things were um, and I think that there are opportunities here to see what kind of society we do want to shape and what kind of, you know, what kind of economic policies, for example, we want to maintain to allow broader inclusion and broader support of marginalised people in our society. But um, previously, I mean, it's become very clear to us that the money's always been there to do these things. It was just a lack of political will.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, Uh, Meripika, you might want to come in on this, that a lot of the things we were told just simply weren't possible. Oh, no, we couldn't possibly do that because it it just wasn't the way things were done. Now, suddenly, um, that has been shown not to be true.
3: Well, I think that it always... When it impacts on other sectors of society, then something will happen. You know the area of work that I work. I work with families that are in a vulnerable position. They were prior to COVID. And so when we were constantly asking for resources to move those families to a better place, the leadership of this country said, no, either get in line or it's not important, you're not our priority. And when you leave people parked up on the sidelines for such a long time, then after a period of time, they do become very, very vulnerable. And that was our concerned guy and going into this COVID. You know, it's not just the new wave of uncertainty and people perhaps becoming the new wave of the unemployed business losses business owners it's actually we've got we've already had a society that was greatly compromised and now we've got this these large thousands of people are uh, being added to that as well so um, my concern really has been the leadership prior leadership and if we're going to get into any sort of recovery mode then the, then leadership will be crucial to that and it cannot be the same leadership as we've had before with the exclusion, I might add, of our Prime
1: Minister, who I have a high regard for. Those are some big themes, and we'll return to them. I just want to come right back to some some basics about humanity. Um, Emily, do you think that human interaction is going to change permanently, the way that we engage? I mean, over the last few weeks and months, we've been taught that that our fellow humans are, you, you know, they are the danger, they are the risk. You know, basic things like shaking hands and hugging people and and pressing up against people or being near people is is being shunned. Do you you think that that is going to change the way that we interact um, among each other for some time to come?
0: I believe it probably will. I have mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, why did we ever think it was a good idea to shake hands during flu season? You know, let alone that French double cheese kit, a cheek kiss thing—that um—that never made sense. And I'd, I'd be very happy to let go of those things. On the other hand, I have a four-year-old daughter who just crashed the Zoom call a moment ago, and you know, the last picture that I took at her preschool on March 9th, so forty-eight hours before the school closed, was uh, a group hug. All these kids coming together in just a big pile, and. It's tragic to think of children developing, perhaps fear is too strong, but maybe it isn't, the fear that adults have of human contact. So on the one hand, it does make sense to be a little more physically distant than we have been, but that, that is sad for little kids. Clementine? I agree. I have
2: a three-year-old as well. And um, again, and I couldn't help but notice the sort of ominous ambulance siren that went in the background of... Uh, the street where you are, Emily, um, I have a three-year-old too. And in the beginning, again, I think it comes back to that abstract difference that the reality of the virus here and in New Zealand has has had very different outcomes to New York and to America. Although I will say that um, certainly some of the news images that are coming out of certain parts of America is clearly showing that some people are not having any problem with contact, which oh, it's is quite, get me started. It's <laughs> yeah. quite worrying and upsetting. Yeah. But um, I think in the beginning here, I've, I have shared those concerns particularly for my son. And I, and I, because we, I had to have very honest conversations with him on the level of a three-year-old about the big germ and what we were all doing together as a community to fight the big germ and we had to come together and be superheroes and he's very into paw patrol so I framed it a lot in terms of you know the pups. Um, and I I was very fastidious about getting him not to touch things, don't go any don't go near people. And I did worry about that are we raising a generation now and necessarily so that will shy away from human contact. But I think as restrictions have eased here, it's been really interesting to notice how very quickly those human impulses return.
1: Miripika, these have had huge implications for Māori. The cultural practice of hongi, of of pressing noses, um, that basically had to be a rahui, a a sort of a a ban on that. And then we had... um, A lot of um, high emotions about the um, inability to to, uh, practice uh, tangi in the way that that would um, hope to be practiced in normal times. Do you see these as being lasting impacts? No, I don't think they'll be lasting. I know that they did cause great concern to
3: be told that your cultural practices must be put aside um, during this period as if to say that we wouldn't exercise um, caution ourselves. I think that was re- what we really found quite offensive. Um, I know that I did break the rules on a number of occasions, from time to time, some of my family would drive past and, and, and I did go out and give the little ones a hug. Um, and, uh, you know, just in a, to, ask, to ask people to put that aside, um, it's a very strange thing to do. And you're right, of course, in Maori culture, um, you never isolate yourself because your family is your support. And so that was very hard. And, but, um, but we did it. I have to say that next time, I doubt whether we will, if there is the next time, and I, I believe that there will be some years down the track, if not earlier, um, that we will have to really watch this. You know, we've, got to, we've got to put in practice in, in place now things that we know will, st- will be workable, um, that people will be able to be safe, um, but we should be doing it ourselves, accepting the responsibility for our own tribal practices and to make those changes that are necessary ourselves. And um, yes.
1: There was quite a bit of criticism wasn't there from Māori Māoridom about uh, the, the lack of engagement um, by the Crown, by the government to bring in uh, Māori voices on some of these issues. Do you think that that was warranted?
3: Well, I think so. Well, yes, it was warranted because we accept that there's this is a, a situation that everybody needs to be alert to and and have a good practices in place. Uh, but we weren't consulted. That's one thing. And it was we were treated as we've been treated over many many decades. That we know what's good for you. And at the end of the day, we're quite smart. We are smart. We're quite capable. Um, and if I would say probably. We would put stringer practices in place, but we did want to have our tangi, our funeral practices last over three days. And the thought that we couldn't do the dressing that we usually do of the body, that we couldn't um, have even two or three family members there, that was most distressing. And the saddest thing about, about that will be that there will be some emotional baggage and carryover from those practices being imposed when they weren't imposed by us and we could have done it in a better way. The result would have been a lot better and we could have put those in and had our own spokespeople telling us why these are necessary. We weren't given the opportunity.
1: Emily, do you think that this has led to a greater sense of unity in, in your population? I, I see some media images of division and lockdown uh, protests, um, and I know that there's been a lot of focus on the partisanship of your politics, but do you feel um, that there has been a sense of, of unity through this crisis also?
0: I've seen both unity and polarization. You know, the the truth is New York City is such a bubble. Um, It always votes for a center-left candidate, you know, and regardless of the election, Um, which is, you know, a long-winded way of saying there are no Trump voters here, or very, very few. So yeah, I have seen a great deal of unity. you know, a coffee shop a couple of blocks from here turned into a food bank. An enormous number of New Yorkers are out of work. An enormous number of uh, Americans are out of work. But New York City is so heavily dependent on the tourism industry. So it's been uh, particularly devastating. Uh, At the same time, the polarization is so extreme. Um, And we've entered into this utterly bizarre moment where wearing a mask has suddenly become this part of the culture wars in a way that I absolutely cannot comprehend. But yeah, you know, those images that you've seen in the media, which to be absolutely clear and fair about it, represent a tiny minority of lunatics. Um, it, you know, these people not wearing masks and gathering in close quarters in Missouri, they're doing that as a political statement, which I find tragic and shocking and I don't really understand. So that's the level of polarization that I think I wouldn't have anticipated, that people would choose not to wear masks in order to show their support for the president. It's insane.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting, isn't it? So it's like it's a triumph of partisanship or politics over over science, the idea that there isn't a, a scientific right thing to do it's more a signal about which side of an argument you're on. Have I got exactly. that right?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as far as I understand it, you know, again, in the liberal bubble of New York City and not having left my house in two months. But, yeah, that's, that's about it.
1: Do you wear a mask when you do? I mean, is it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we wear a mask at all times and we go out. My four-year-old has a cute little mask with owls on it, which she'll wear. Mm.
1: I mean, I I, I know you, um, and rightly so. You didn't want to to you know promote your book on the back of this, but it, but it, 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 it I, I can't unsay it. I mean, if someone's h- having wrote, written a book about a, a a world ravaged by a virus, you sometimes thinking, oh my god, I've woken up in my, my own novels. <laughs> I mean, it's
0: no, um, no. There there was always going to be a virus, or there was always going to be something. Uh, something that became clear to me in reading about the history of pandemics for that book was that. There is always another pandemic, which is not to minimize the awfulness of this moment in any way. But I don't feel I predicted anything; I feel it was inevitable.
1: Mm. Clementine, how, how are you seeing um, Australians react to this? With a, with a sense of with a sense of unity? I've noted,
2: sort of, Riley that Australians love to think of themselves as, you know, the kind of cultural mythology that we have around ourselves is that we we're battlers and we, you know, we we question authority and, you know not so much to the same extent of perhaps some of the people that are protesting in America, but, but this sort of, no one can tell us what to do. We'll stand up for the little guys, etc. But actually what I've observed is that we love being told what to do. We love being given a set of rules and uh, a set of rules that allows us to feel very good about ourselves too. So we're doing the right things by social distancing. We're, um, you know, maintaining the rules, maintaining the, the, our commitment to the cause, But I wonder whether or not, I mean, one of the things I've sort of also thought is, it's interesting that there are so many harmful things that occur in societies, you know, racism, sexism, et cetera, all of these cultural problems that have always been dismissed as too difficult to tackle. Well, this is just human nature. Well, we can't, you know, we can't address men's violence against women because it's too hard. It's too hard to really fundamentally get anyone to change or it's just a joke. It's just a joke. They're just words, et cetera. But actually, when you give people a very clear framework of, uh, you know, this is the kind of community that we not only want, but the kind of community that we need. And if you fail to adhere to the rules of the community, you will be at the very least ostracized and you will potentially be publicly treated like a pariah. Um, It will be made clear to you that you are not abiding by the rules and the standards that we have set out for this community that we want to live in. And I think it's interesting that we're so able to do that in a situation like this, and it's great that we're able to do that in a situation like this, and yet so many other social problems have, we've failed to really commit to creating good communities. You know, speaking about men's violence against women, of course one of the inevitable and terrifying consequences of a pandemic like this is a massive increase in um, not only reports but obviously in circumstances of family violence and domestic abuse. Um, And what do you, I mean, I'd be very interested to hear Maripika's view on that and take on that, because obviously that's your area of expertise. But what do we do about that in a global pandemic where people are forced to isolate? How do you address that
1: problem? Maripika?
3: Well, I think we have put up with so much for so long and, and that's been the problem. We've had ample opportunity over many years to say, what is the desirable future we want for our country? Because right now, We've got an A team and a B team. And if you're in the A team, I'm all right, Jack, and nothing's wrong with me and my family. And so we're prepared to leave thousands of New Zealanders parked up on the sideline who have, who are trying right now um, to battle, you know, inadequate housing, low income coming into the home, um, mental, significant mental health issues and physical health issues, all of those sort of things. And so we haven't addressed them well enough. There's been little commitment to address them well enough. And we have... I believe that we've just decided, and this government, and the New Zealand society as well, we've just decided there will always be a certain number of New Zealanders that are actually going to be a drag on society and we'll just have to factor that, that number into our economy. And how sad is that? Because if we do that, we're allowing another group of um, young people to be actually born into those circumstances and that's not good enough everyone in New Zealand has a right to be able to contribute to the development the ongoing development of them of their country and to deny them that opportunity by saying just because you've because you've been born into, uh, born into these circumstances that's in fact where you're going to stay and that to me is not right but we really haven't had the, the leadership whenever we look these days it's all about growing the economy this was prior to COVID you know, we've got to make sure we grow the economy, etc. But you've got to, at the same time, grow the people, and they go hand in hand. They're interdependent. We could have done so better in New Zealand many years ago. We could have really knocked this whole domestic violence on the head if we had, if we had concentrated on our young women, and uh, and just made it very clear to them: you don't have to pick some no-hope, you know, you look after yourself and know who you are. But we've never, we've never framed our responses to uh, young women's um, issues. We've never looked at it in the clear light of day and said we need to start as soon as our young girls are born and just make sure that we put as equal emphasis on them as we do on our young boys and give them the equal opportunities that that others have
1: had. Picker, what did the people you have contacts with, what were your um, sources and, and contacts saying about what did happen during those intense lockdown weeks in terms of domestic violence?
3: Well, for a lot of them, it was not a happy lot, I have to say, um, because when people, when, as you know, just prior to us going into lockdown, uh, there was a lot of panic buying being done. And now, of course, when you when you don't have much in the way of income, no disposable income, uh, they, they didn't have the opportunity to, to panic buy, if you want to say it but, like that, they didn't have that opportunity. They didn't have the opportunity to buy the um, the hygiene packs and things, you know, that, those because they didn't have the money. And so pressure was building prior to going into actually lockdown. And then, of course, um, some of those homes, people are bare, barely surviving. Um, they've got significant health issues. They've got addiction issues. All of those. That's not all of them, but. But people, when they're used to getting up in the morning, some of them, many of them, going off to work and suddenly to be in a lockdown position, separated from your your whānau, your immediate family, that you're in contact with every day, that you're sharing your spaces with every day, you can't come into our home anymore. It was just too much for many families. And sadly, we're seeing that. The increase in domestic violence, the increase in in children's harm, uh, those are alarming statistics, and they really are. And we couldn't get to them. We always said, oh, we'll just ring this number. Someone will be there. That was not the case. That was not the case. And we had our services. I mean, our services were able to spring into action. Up and down the country, you saw community health providers, community social service providers. We couldn't afford to wait for the government to give us any direction. We just had to get in there and, um, and assist our families as best we could but there will be significant social issues come out of this COVID lockdown, absolutely. And they're bearing down on us right now.
1: You're listening to After The Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy, and Espiner about how our lives will change in the wake of COVID-19. Emily, um, homelessness very visible to anyone who visits the United States. Um, what have the what have the people without homes done in in this pandemic?
0: They fared very poorly. I mean, I think it will be obvious to anyone watching from abroad that the United States is a little bit of a um, a leadership vacuum, let's say at the top, um, and we see that reflected everywhere, including the response to homelessness. There was. There were these obscene stories and images of homeless encampments um, in some cities being set up in a socially distanced way. So picture a parking lot with squares chalked out six feet apart where homeless people were allowed to pitch their tents so they wouldn't be too close together with empty hotel rooms all around them because nobody's traveling. It's just, yeah, it's absurd. Um, And I do wonder if this crisis will begin to change the way we um, the way we house homeless people, because there were outbreaks in homeless shelters in New York City, which was inevitable. You know, it was clear very early on that this was going to be an epicenter um, for the absence of federal leadership, but also because it's a very dense population here, which is, of course, what gives the city the kind of electricity that I love, but makes us terribly vulnerable in a pandemic. I find myself wondering if that's perhaps one of the good things that could come out of this at some point.
1: Let's change pace and talk about um, art and, and culture. Perhaps I can uh, stick with you for a second, Emily. How's this? You, you're going to be try, trying to make trying to make art in the broader sense. Um, I guess trying to trying to write. How, how do you think this experience is going to change? how we write, what we want to read, how we express ourselves culturally. What are the stories we're going to tell ourselves and how are they going to be different as a result of this?
0: It's a bit of an open question. I've had this conversation with a few people and the problem we keep coming back to, you know, because I approach this as a novelist is how do you write a novel about something that everybody else experienced too? You know the, um, You can write your lockdown novel, but how will you differentiate it from the other 35 lockdown novels coming out the same year? So uh, my honest answer is I'm not sure. I do think it will change book tours. You know, the economics of book tours never made sense. And now that we've seen that they can, in fact, be done by Zoom, which to be clear, I would much rather be with all of you in person. Um, And the same goes for all the book events I've done digitally. But it is a possibility now. Yeah, I'm not sure how it will impact our art. Clementine? Uh, I mean, I think that
2: accessibility is a huge issue that, you know, when you, when you can do things digitally, you break down the barriers of people who are unable to access, um, you know, in-person book events or in-person discussions, which is wonderful. At the same time, we're all very frustrated with Zoom. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I the arts this is certainly the case everywhere i'm sure but one of the one of the terrible impacts as well of this virus in australia is the impact on the arts community and you know artists and performers bring in a huge amount of money to the economy every year enormous amount and it's completely undervalued and it's been very disheartening to see from some of the probably expected quarters people who are usually like love to be derisive towards art and artists and the need for funding for artists it's been really disheartening to see that sort of gleeful the gleeful joy that people are willing to take in thinking that thousands of people could be out of work because it's a win for the right wing or something you know it's like owning the liberals to destroy arts if if there are positive opportunities from a pandemic and of course there are one of those opportunities is as i said to kind of create the kind of community that we want and to place an emphasis on connection and support and and care for each other and to see that uh, that indulgence in you know dismissing the role that art and literature and theater and music and all of those things brings to our lives and the joy that it brings to us and the the way that it reflects and taps into humanity is quite disgusting I think and it sort of does tie into you know Emily mentioned the leadership vacuum in America and that sort of that ugly face of well I'm not going to wear a mask because masks are I don't there's some weird kind of understanding of masculinity as well wrapped up in that you know that real men don't wear masks or you know I'm I'm like too strong to let a virus get me it's I feel like all of those things that you know people are indulgently kind of leaning into it would be nice if we could sit back and reflect as a society whether or not these things benefit us or not and clearly they don't
1: let's talk about gender a bit i mean there's been a bit of focus on the fact that um, countries led by women have have done well look i haven't done a scientific study on this but i know that um, several countries um, including new zealand um, and finland um, who have managed the virus quite well from a public health perspective um, have been led by by women do you think there's anything in there
2: i mean i think that the i think that there's something in diversity in represent- representative democracy, and that—that's—I mean, I personally think that women potentially bring different skills to a job like that. And we all love Jacinda, but I did see a tweet recently that you know—it's very easy to say, well, to make jokes about Jacinda, come and come and run the whole world, or we, you know, I wish we had Jacinda. And this tweet said, it's not about Jacinda; it's about electing more women. And it's not just about electing more women, it's about electing more diverse representatives. I would love to see a focus or a recognition coming out of this of the benefit and value that comes from having truly diverse representation in government and the understanding that you need people from different backgrounds and you need people from with different cultural and social and physical understandings of the world to be able to build the kind of society that represents all of us. I think that there are certain, you know, with Jacinda in particular, there are certain things that she's been able to do or that she's, she's cared about doing that I think is reflective of perhaps not her just being a woman, but her being a mother. You know, the, the press conference that she held, for example, with children in New Zealand, I don't think that it's an unreasonable leap to say that's something that someone who cares for a child would think was important i i would love to see people recognise more that the essential work that's being done across most of the world now is largely being performed by women in care industries that have that are always undervalued and dismissed as being unimportant and certainly undervalued economically
1: Medi Picker, um, that point about essential workers um, and a lot of them being women—I've seen studies that have, have shown that, that the majority indeed have been. Um, do you think that we are going to learn to appreciate them more as a result of COVID-19 and, and the pandemic?
3: Probably not. If we're, part, if we're going to go down the same old track, we won't. We'll
1: just say, "Well, those are all—that's
3: women's work. They've always done it." But, but things do need to change in that regard. And I just want to come back to the whole leadership question. I think where we have seen um, where we have seen women leading uh, during this period, leading their countries during this period of the COVID, I think their leadership has been quite quite outstanding, and certainly very different uh, from the male leadership that we have seen in other countries. They tend to have a more calming presence, and it is because they're female. I believe it is because they're, they're certainly not weak, absolutely not. But they they are they have a calming presence. Their, their messages are usually very clear, and it's delivered with, uh, with empathy. And I think that is what has captured, I think that's what's captured the attention of their nations. And, and, it, and it has encouraged us all to say, well, we can do this, and we have to do this. And the messages, messaging has been clear. Where, of course, you see the men, well, it's the usual thing that we've always seen, bombastic, um, somewhat aggressive, alpha male, um, now you'll do this, and, now you'll, and indeed, in some cases, now we won't do this and the consequences have been very dire. So I, I look around the world, and, and I, particularly our Scandinavian um, leaders, women leaders, and, and Angela Merkel, um, and those women, and Taiwan, they have a leader there, um, they tend to be younger, and they haven't, been, they haven't come through the politics of um, sarcasm and criticism and sniping that we have all become so used to because we've seen male leaders. And that's been the motor that's been the MO of, of the male leaders around the world. and these women leaders are quite different. It's strikingly different. and I think I think our, the younger people around the world now they look they're looking for something different and they're founded in, in women leaders. and uh, I think we've been well served in New Zealand. Uh, I think it's a bit of a shame that some of our other ministers haven't said a word because if you look back it was always Helen Clark. In the previous governments that Helen Clark led, it was always the Minister, Prime Minister Helen Clark doing the talking. And sometimes now, I think I think leadership can be shared. There are opportunities for leadership to be shared, and we've never seen that. And maybe the Prime Minister thought it has to be her and um, Dr Blomfield, and that's fine. But I'd like to see others now exerting um, their leadership potential because if we're going to bounce back from this, um, it has to be we have to we have to see the other leaders who are going to be part and parcel of driving um, the recovery in not only the economic sense but in the social sense as well. And it needs to
1: happen now. Let's change pace and talk about some more everyday life things and I'd be interested in your thoughts about how some of these things might uh, change. Do do you get a sense that your world is shrinking and that it's going to be more community-based now? I mean, obviously, in reality, it, it does with borders being closed. Do you think that that's going to have a an impact? Emily, I know for myself that I'm walking around my my village and and to be at the bottom of the world in New Zealand and to think that our borders are closed. I feel like my world is shrinking a little bit. I wonder if you guys feel the same. Help me.
0: Yeah, I do feel that way. Um, I live in New York City, but I grew up in southwestern British Columbia in the extreme west of Canada. And my whole family is still there. And they're suddenly so infinitely far away. It used to not, you know, it's a very long trip, obviously. It's about six hours to the other side of the continent and then another four hour flight, but it was doable. Um, Now it might as well be the other side of the world in 1850. You know, it's just, it's so far. Or even um, I was up on my terrace earlier looking out at Manhattan and I can see the skyline from my house but I was realizing how far away that is when your government requests that you not get on the subway, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty wild. So on the other hand, it does feel as if my world has shrunk in a very profound way. On the other hand, when that, when that changes, you know, when the numbers improve enough that these restrictions begin to lift, I can't tell you how desperate I am to travel. <laughs> I'll go everywhere as soon as I can.
1: What's the top of your list? Uh, Paris. What about you, Clementine? Do you feel that? Are you going to jump on a plane? you feel like jumping on a plane when you're allowed to?
2: I mean, I have to travel quite a lot for work, so it's been nice to not have to rush around. I suppose, again, you know, that that comes from, or that ability to feel that way comes from a place of enormous privilege. Um, I don't feel like my world has shrunk because one of the enormous benefits, of course, of going through a global pandemic in 2020 is that, we're connected everywhere, you know we're all in different parts of well we're certainly you know different parts of the world, and we're having a conversation with each other. and I think as well, you know when we first entered isolation and uh, I share care with my son's father fifty fifty, so half of the time I'm by myself, so I have that insight into and i you know I live just with my son, so I have that insight into some people who feel oppressed and suffocated by that isolation and alone. Um, I, I, I get a glimmer of what that might feel like in the days that I'm by myself. And it's interesting because a friend of mine, uh, Alice Robinson, is an author and she writes um, climate change disaster fiction. And her most recent book, The Glad Shout, is about a woman, uh, you know, it's post, post-climate apocalypse. And it's really an exploration of what it looks like to parent through Something like that, you know, because the the typical stories that we're shown about survival aren't necessarily focused on the the banality of caring for children in a time like this. And although that pressure is lessened now, um, it's still very much there for a lot of obviously for lots of women around the world. How do you entertain children? What do you do with them when you can't? How do you explain to them we can't go to the park, even? That That is a burden that I think some men have and have an, have an experience of, but that is still largely falling to women to be the explainers of that and to kind of soften that blow for our children. So I suppose coming out the other side, what I'm looking forward to is less travelling and expanding my world, but more being able to return to expanding his in some way. It's funny that we started the year terrified of climate change and climate apocalypse because of, you know, of course in Australia we were dealing with the bushfires. And not even six months into the year, the, the vision of what our world could look like is very, very different from that. And one of, the, one of the bonuses perhaps is that we can start uh, living more responsibly in the earth and on the earth.
1: Well, I did promise that we'd um, get to some, some good things and I did, uh, I did need to, to seek your help for, for that. What are some of the good things that are going to come out of this, uh, Meripeka?
3: Well we know that, well I know that um, we never get the opportunity to press the pause button. I mean we do perhaps uh, when one of our partners or a significant uh, other dies or our business goes to the war or um, something happens, a significant health event or perhaps one of our children. But this is an opportunity for us to press the pause, pause button and it shouldn't just be left to the government. Um, and leaders in our communities. I think every family now needs to take a look, press the pause button, have a look at their own situation and you know their relationships, um, you know, or their health, um, the energy that they've got, uh, all of those sort of things, and, and their work, for goodness sake. And if you're working eight hours in a, di- in a day, are going somewhere that you just don't want to be there and, and working with people that you don't even want to look at again, then why would you go back to it? So there's an opportunity to press that pause button and think, right, in the next three months, if I just do two or three things, and it may well be saying goodbye to crappy relationships, so be it. You know, do all of that sort of thing. And that's where we've got that opportunity to have those hard conversations, not only with ourselves, but with our families. And if we have those hard conversations and say, well, we're not going back, what we had before, that's all we ever knew. That's what we dealt with. But we're, go- we're, we're, going to, we're going to craft something better for our families and for our children. And so we'll do it together. Some things we'll be able to look to support from, from the government, but shift happens. We've got to get understand that shift happens in our lives, not the, not the other proverbial, but when shift happens, then we're in a better place because we've had the opportunity to press that pause button and say, we can handle it because every once in a while, maybe every two or three years, we we'll press that pause button. We won't wait for something significant to happen, and we'll say now our finances are on track, our you know our relationships with all the family members are better, our health is on tip top, and so we're doing okay. Because when we when we don't do that reflection from time to time, and something hits, then we're coming from the back foot, and we should never put ourselves in that position again. <laughs> Emily,
0: this is kind of piggybacking off of what Marapika just said. You know, on a personal level, but I think we've seen this more broadly. um, My husband used to work extremely long hours. He would go into Manhattan for 12 hour days sometimes. And now that he's home, he's spent more time with our daughter than he ever has before. And I think that that's an experience that a lot of working people have had. And you know, it makes me think that there is, as Maripika was saying, a way to reimagine our working lives and our family lives in a way that's a little more sustainable and less punitive. I can't really see my husband going back to spending as little time with our daughter as he used to, you know, now that he's seen a different way to do his job. So yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for shift there on a personal level. I think also on a more governmental level, I assume it's like this everywhere, but we're always told, oh, you know, it would be wonderful to have social program X or funding for Y, but there just isn't the money. But what we've seen in the United States are these trillion dollar bailouts now that the economy is on the brink of total collapse, which suggests that the money was in fact there the whole time. You know, um, that turned out not to have been the case. There wasn't enough money for the things that would make our world a little bit better. So... Those are two things I've been thinking about that might change. There's an Australian
2: economist, Richard Dennis, and he says the same thing about. You know, he sort of frames that issue as the government being like parents, that you know, the child comes to the parent and says, "I well, I really want this toy, or I really want this thing," and the parents saying, "Oh, well, we just can't afford it. There's no money for that." And of course, sometimes that's true, obviously, but you know, parents also know that we say. There's no... We just don't have the capacity for that when, as Emily said, there's always money in the banana stand. Right, <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, that reminds me, I was going to talk about food. I want to talk about food a little bit. Um, has it changed the way the way we eat seafood, the place that that plays in, in society? I mean, are we going to go back to to eating out and, and having that as part of our social fabric, or is that stuff going to change? What do you think?
2: I don't know in America if people are still making sourdough, but I think maybe the attempts to make sourdough have, have sort of slipped away. Was here that with
1: you guys had... too? I thought we invented the sourdough um, craze during lockdown. <laughs> Everyone
2: Everybody wants to learn how it. to bake bread. Know. and that But that's really interesting that, you know one of our ways one of our coping mechanisms as a society and as individuals has been to literally get our hands dirty, to make to build something with our hands, to connect with food and to to connect with something tangible through the through the making of something nourishing. Returning, I suppose, to smaller smaller circles is something I would like us to continue doing afterwards rather than, I guess, returning to the altar of capitalism to worship at it. Although we've been doing a lot of online shopping.
1: Well, shopping's the other thing that's changed dramatically in our day-to-day lives. Um, And uh, Emily and uh, Meripeke, you'll want to comment on this too. Um, This hyper-consumerism, it does allow you to press pause a little bit and think, do I need this? Um, Do you think that that is a consequence of the pandemic?
3: I think that's one thing that we have really looked at Um, how we've spent our time you know, where we spend our time, where we spend our dollars, Um, you know and and this whole pandemic I think has given us an opportunity to look at our health because during this time you know, we've, we've Obviously, we've caught up on our sleep. I'd like to think we've caught up on our sleep. We've looked at what we're eating, we've looked at are we doing any exercise. So, and then of course you, you just think, think, well, actually, and what am I spending my dollars on? All that stuff that we buy um, that we don't use. And we've got closets full of clothes. And I noticed that actually prior to the, prior to, to COVID, that I wasn't, you only wear a certain amount of gear, and then you, but you still buy. And then so there, there is an opportunity now to really look to think that. We can do better than this. That's what I'm saying. We can actually do better. We can put our time and effort and, de- and indeed our money into making a, making life better for ourselves and also for the community and for the world as well. What we do on the land, what we do on the land and uh, and that sort of thing, where we're importing our food products from and our additives. I mean, these are things before that we never really thought much about, but it all adds up really when you think about it. If we're going to try to keep pandemic, uh, pandemic at bay, then why aren't we looking about the total picture and not just pieces of it? And if we just think about this is just you know we're all part of a we're all part of the whole the whole you know rather than all the bits and pieces. And if we just address one piece without without thinking about the impact on the whole, then nothing really is is going to change in a, in a sustainable way. And so it's the thinking that has to change as well, and um, and that'll be a challenge for many people because it's very it's what we, the fallback position is this is what we've known in the past, this is what we've done in the past, and it's so much easier, and I don't have to think too hard. Well, I think it's time we put our thinking caps on and just say, well, it might have been easier, but it certainly wasn't good for the community and for our world. So why not accept the challenge?
1: I'm just going to finish with the question for each of you, um, which is, do you want your old life back? Emily? Um.
0: You know, I used to travel a lot for my job, too. And I know I just said that I miss travel, and I really do, but it has been nice being home with my daughter and not being on these constant 48-hour trips to random cities all over the United States for lectures. Um, Yeah, so I I don't know that I want to do as much travel when the world changes back. Um, I have to be honest, I do miss childcare. That's, uh, you know, I, I love spending so much time with my daughter, but try getting work done while homeschooling a four-year-old. You know, Clementine, I'm sure you feel my pain. <laughs> it's not easy. I got, a, um,
1: I got a six-year-old and I was playing teacher yeah. and journalist at home for two months and I hear you. When the schools opened up again, wow, yeah. it was a big day.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're at very different points, um, you know, between Australia and New Zealand versus the United States. Um, An idea that I found really interesting that I came across in a medium essay a few months ago was um, the essayist's name was uh, Tomas Pollo. He's a Silicon Valley guy. Uh, The essay was called The Hammer and the Dance, and it described the way that we'll probably be dealing with a coronavirus pandemic over the next however many months or years we have before a vaccine is widely available and disseminated. Which is that there will be the periods of the hammer, which is okay, we're going into lockdown, the schools are closing, and we need to shut everything down. And then, as that flattens the curve, the numbers decline, you then enter the dance, which is how can we readjust and recalibrate society to contain this illness that we cannot yet cure or vaccinate against? So, I feel as though all of you are in the first stages of the dance, but in New York City, it's still the hammer. You know, we're still trying to imagine whether or not our kids will go to school in September, let alone now. So yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting divide and it's, it's interesting to talk to all of you.
1: And final thoughts from you Clementine and we'll finish with Midi Uh
0: I love that
2: vision of the hammer and the dance. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful tragedy in that. And the thought that we could be doing that for years is, I mean, from a literary point of view, it's very exciting, but obviously it's not, not necessarily very exciting <laughs> in practice. Um, I I don't want to return to the way things were, uh, mainly because I think that the ability for everyone to slow down has, if we are in the first stages of the dance here, one of the ways in which I feel that personally in my life is, is a lessening of the tension and the stress that we entered into in the beginning. And and an, an embrace of the slower way of living. As Metapika says, you know, we're sleeping more, we're sleeping better. And the ways in which people are able to work at home. Um, I think I read in New Zealand recently that the rates of self-harm and, you know, death by suicide has lowered. And I wonder if that's connected to a, a lack of stress about needing to, you know, for people who suffer from anxiety, being able to work in your own space is, is helpful um and i've also like emily really appreciated the time that i've been able to spend with my child because even before we we went into lockdown even before the virus kind of established itself i was already feeling that sense of that his his time and his childhood was like me holding you know a cup of water from the ocean in my hands and i couldn't i couldn't hold on to it it was just dripping away and no matter what i did it was just passing through my fingers And so being forced, but it was also very easy to justify saying, well, I have to work, I have to work, he's got to go to childcare. And I love childcare, don't get me wrong. But being forced into a position where uh, we had to adjust together to being in each other's space all day, every day, and then find a way of being that was beautiful and soft and lovely and... And I, I noticed myself a few weeks ago looking at him and thinking, you know, he was, he'd said something funny that just made me laugh and laugh. And I thought I would have met, missed that. There would have been a moment that I didn't get. So being able to kind of reflect on the precious time that we've, you know, those of us with small children can appreciate now because we are no longer in living or operating in a world that tells us that we need to be moving at 200 miles an hour and we need to be constantly producing work in order to be a valuable member of society has been. Very helpful, and I don't want to return to that. Currently, or certainly prior to this, you know, we know that there's very little respect for those professions. And hopefully we've all had a massive wake-up call about how wrong we were to think that. I didn't think that. I hope none of you
1: thought it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I have to say I've had the
3: opportunity over these last couple of months to do the hard thinking. And um, I've looked at my life prior to COVID, and I thought, well, is this the be- is this the best that I can do? And it's not. It certainly isn't. I mean, I've, I've, I've looked at the time, the energy, and indeed the money that I've wasted on activities that have really not added any value to my life. They really haven't. And, of course, it's what I've done for year in, year out. And so I just find that, you know, burning the candle at both ends, working in areas, in some areas where I know now that there are other people who can pick it up and probably do a better job. And my home environment, there's been neglect and all, you know, not purposely, it's just that over a while you start to drift. And this has given me an opportunity to tighten things up and just to think about, you know, I'm, I've reached the three score and 10, uh, the allotted time, and, well, God knows, I want another 20 good summits but I want those summers to count and that's why I've been prepared to have the hard conversations with myself and a couple of people that I really value in terms of their opinion and I've decided that no you, if you were happy that's fine but I think we can always do better and it's whether or not we have the courage to actually sit down with ourselves maybe a couple of other people and say what do you reckon don't you think and I can tell you sometimes what you get back can be a bit of an eye-opener, so be
1: prepared for it as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good place to leave it. Thank you very much. Mary Pika Raukawa Tate, Emily St John Mandel and Clementine Ford. After the Virus is produced by RNZ by me, Guyon Espiner, and Justin Gregory. Claire Easton-Farrelly is the visual director, Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkin are the executive producers. You can also watch this series on video, so head over to rnz.co.nz podcasts to catch that and for plenty of other great content. All RNZ podcasts are free to listen to and ad-free as well on rnz.co.nz and on the RNZ app.
2: Selling a little or a
3: lot?